they flew us up north and put us in a room for six months and said, you're going to learn, you're going to learn psychometrics, man. And it was, uh, it was pretty intense and um, learned a lot. But, you know, I'm so grateful for that because it really gave me a foundation. Um, you know, if you're new or you've been around a while and you don't know psychometrics, I mean, I could tell you it has helped me throughout my career tremendously. And one of the favorite ways I like to use it is for troubleshooting issues. And I, I would say, you know, in, in that six months of training, I got three months of that with psychometrics. I probably learned more in the field in a month than I did in the three months in the classroom, right? Because there's only so much, I don't know how you guys are, but it's only so much I can learn from paper and doing it. But when you're out in front of a unit, like John said, and you carry, you know, I try to carry around a, a paper. I'm old fashioned. I have this thing called a paper psych chart and a pencil. Hey, I'm Heather Robinson, and you're listening to an episode of the Engineers HVAC podcast. In this episode, Tony Mormino was a guest on Armstrong Fluid Technologies annual Fireside Chat podcast, where they discuss the importance of training in the HVAC industry and what to look forward to in 2024. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoy it. Thanks for joining me today. Um, I really appreciate all your help this past year. We've had a great year of webinars and presented a lot of really great information to our customers around the, around the country and even some around the world. One of the things that we do is toward the end of the year, and that's what kind of drove the fireside chat concept, is we look back at all the different webinar topics that we've done over the past year and tried to figure out where we had the most interest, where we had the most kind of questions and things that came up following the webinar, a lot of different interaction with different customers, a lot of different conversations. And two things really came out this year in a couple of the webinars we did. One was the one that we did on psychometrics and the properties of air that John and, and Tony Marino were, you know, spearheaded those webinars. I was kind of there and helped out a little bit, but those two guys really led those discussions about psychometrics. And so that was one of the things. So that's one of the things we're going to talk about today. The other one that really drove lots and lots of conversation was building envelope and what is critical about the building envelope and why is building envelope so important. And we had a lot of questions about how the building envelope and psychometrics play together. Mm -hmm. And so what we decided, we had a lot of conversations, and that's what led to the topics for today's fireside chat. Uh, we're going to talk about psychometrics and some of the things that we know about psychometrics and what to do with them, as well as the building envelope and how the two interact. So with that, um, John, Tony, you guys got anything you want to say before we really kind of get started? Well, I'll just say thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed these. These are great, a great format, a great way, you know, for myself and for Insight Partners and Hobbs to give back to the HVAC community, which is real important to us. I think it's super important in our industry today. I think there's, you know, maybe a little bit of a gap in terms of training, especially quality training online, and you guys do a great job. So, you know, I'll just say thank you for, for having us here and the opportunity to, to do this. It's awesome. Appreciate it. Definitely. Yeah, it's great to have all you guys back and kind of wrap up the year with a nice fireside chat on a couple critical topics that we kind of keep seeing again and again in the industry. So, Great. Well, let's get started, guys. So, you know, this is this is a bit informal. It's not you're not going to see a fancy PowerPoint presentation today. So this is no death by PowerPoint. Um, this is a lot of conversation between three guys that have been in the HVAC industry a very, very long time. Um, some of us more than others, but we've all been around a while. We've all got a wealth of experience. So we want to share that. So one of the things that came out and and John and Tony, I'm going to let you kind of take this one and run with it. One of the things that came out in talking to people after the webinar was 
you know, once, okay, we all understand psychometrics, it's the properties of air and what it means. But how do you take that information and how do you troubleshoot a system? How do you analyze a system that's really in operation and use the psych chart to figure out what it's really doing or what it's not doing, as to, you know, depending on what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, probably the easiest way to do that is get your state points going in and out of the unit after the, you know, before and after the cooling coil. So what is your total um, change in the air? So you're going to measure your, you know, either wet bulb and dry bulb on the return side right before you go into the air handling unit and your supply air, discharge air, dry bulb and wet bulb. And that'll, you know, plot those two points on the chart. Um, Try to get an idea of how many CFM that unit's doing. There's a couple of different ways to do that, but if you can just get an idea of airflow and those two points, you can extrapolate that to energy from there and see what's the total energy. Is this a three-ton unit? Am I getting three tons? Or am I really only getting two tons? And then why? You know, is it an airflow issue? Am I low on airflow? Am I not getting the DTs I expect? You know, we can start looking at whether it's refrigerant or chilled water, you know, incoming and leaving water or incoming and leaving refrigerant temperatures and kind of work backwards from there. Um, but it all starts with knowing what the incoming air is and knowing what the leaving air is out of that unit and what that unit is actually, how much work that unit's actually doing to the air. You had anything to add to that, Tony, Tony uh, first, or Mormino? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, my, I, I'm very fortunate. I started, when I started in this business in 97, I worked for one of the big, you know, big manufacturers and they, you know, we didn't have a choice on and you can troubleshoot sometimes what's happening. If you've got an elevated leaving air temperature off of a DX piece of equipment, is it because you're low on suction and the evaporator is just not cooling the air all the way down? Or is the reheat valve stuck open? Are you getting some reheat? Well, you can quickly tell that by a psych chart or have that take you in the right direction. You know what I'm saying? So this kind of thing's just crazy, extremely helpful. You know, what's my, what's my airflow? Sometimes you could measure before and after the heat strip and you can get a delta T and you can kind of estimate if you got the KW, what the airflow of the unit is, or give you kind of a ballpark. It's not extremely accurate sometimes, but um, just some of the way that I've used it. But I, I cannot stress enough, like, you know, I teach, we present um, psychometrics all the time. Every year we go through one, two or three, and we've done a couple here. And I, I it's one of my favorite things to talk about, because honestly, without that, like everything stems from that, like the knowledge of DX equipment, the knowledge of control sequences and all that. Um, Anyway, that's what kind of came up when you were asking that question, Tony. Well, you know, and and Tony, you bring this up, and I know you showed your your fancy little uh, electronic psychrometer. And <laughs> I know what you're gonna show. You know, you know exactly what I'm gonna show because I'm old school. And now, don't don't take this the wrong way. I have one of the fancy electronic ones. But no, I get it. This is, you know, I'm I'm old school. This is a old school sling psychrometer. I love and, it. And you know, the this is what we used to use. I mean, this is what I learned with. This is this is how I learned to yeah. read wet bulb and dry bulb. And it's funny, I had I was out not long ago with somebody looking at actually I was looking at humidity problems in a building. Mm -hmm. And they asked me, they said, Well, where did the term wet bulb come from? And I'm like, Oh, you're kidding. You don't know? A lot of people because don't know. Yeah. Well, they're used to they're used to your you know the electronic psychrometer. Yeah. Well, how do you get wet bulb with an electronic psychrometer? You it's calculated backwards from humidity and and dry bulb. Mm -hmm. But in in the original world, okay, you have this is you know this is a sling psychrometer. There's a conventional dry bulb. I got to remember to hold it up. There's a just an a dry bulb thermometer there. And on the other side, there's another thermometer, looks just like the other one, except it's got a sock over the end of the thermometer. And you get the sock wet. And there's a little reservoir on the end, you fill it up with water, you get the sock all wet. And then you sling this thing around like this, and it won't tell me what the wet bulb is right now because I didn't get it wet. But you sling it around for a minute and you read the numbers and there's a little scale on the side of it. And what you read on the on the thermometer with the sock, that's your wet bulb reading. It's really Very simple. simple. Um, and, and explain explain why that 
wet bulb is always lower than the dry bulb, Tony. For those because you you've got evaporative cooling taking place, right? And that's what's going to drop the temperature on the wet bulb side of the thermometer. So the drier and the air, the drier the air, the more evaporative cooling that takes place, and so that's what's going to drive your wet bulb temperature downward. Yep. Um, except when you're leaving a cooling coil, and then you know your wet bulb temperature and your dry bulb temperature are almost identical because you're saturation. If everything, the coil's working right, you're at saturation coming off the coil, which usually boggles people's minds as to, well, wait a minute, I've got this really humid air coming off the coil. Yeah, but you got really humid cold air. But anyway, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, the nice thing about, the other thing that you run into is, okay, you're out troubleshooting a unit. And I want to know what the temperature is what the wet bulb temperature is on the air entering side and on the air leaving side of my coil. Well, if it's a small unit, if it's a three-ton air handling unit, I'm not going to put my sling psychrometer inside the ductwork and spin it around. I'm not going to fit inside there to do that. I'm not going to get on the leaving air side of the coil. Same thing with Tony's fancy little electronic meter is it's not easy to get that inside the duct. I mean, you got to drill right. a little bit hole and I mean, it's, you know, and you may not be able to get in the center of the duct where you're really going to get good measurements. So what do you do? Well, wouldn't I just explain what wet bulb is? It's a little stock over the end of the thermometer, right? So if I have a conventional electronic thermometer with probes, yep. I take one probe and I put a wet sock over the end of it, a little piece of gauze wrapped around it, wire tied in place and, a, and a, another probe that's dry doesn't have a sock on it and I put both of them in the ductwork. Guess what? That's a wet ball breeding and a dry ball breeding. 100%. Yep. And then take my site chart, plot those numbers out and I figure out what my relative humidity is. So, you know. And the good thing today too is you can do that relatively inexpensively. Like they oh, used yeah. to be very expensive, these sensors and stuff. And you know, if you're a T&B guy, you want something expensive that's nice and high quality. But just for purposes of what we're talking about, you don't need to spend a lot of money, right, Tony? Right. Well, and, and you know, you can still buy these today. I mean, they're still available. And and the thing I like about that one, guess what? It doesn't need batteries. I was um, trying to buy one of those for our last presentation. Those are actually expensive because they're not made very much anymore. Right. But they're very nice for a demonstration. They're they're perfect because it shows the two bulb thermometers right next to each other. But anyway, yeah. sorry to interrupt you. I just had to add that. No, but it's okay. That's okay. I'm going to borrow yours next time. I'll pay for shipping. <laughs> okay. We'll do that. And of course, maybe, you've got that happy I'll come, maybe, maybe I'll come join you and we'll do one live together. There you go. There you go. You know, that there could be fun. Um, hey guys, I have a I have a couple of questions that came in. Um, cool. So let me know when you guys are ready for those. Yeah, go. Sounds as good a time as any, Army. <clears throat> All right. So, what resources did you find best to help you learn psychometrics? Oh boy. Um, well, I'm like Tony, um, in, and I was educated by a small little air conditioning company up north. Um, and so they beat psychometrics into my head. Um, and I, I really and truly think it was probably of the six months I was there in, in, that, in that particular training program. Mm -hmm. I swear three months of the time I was there, I spent learning psychometrics. Um, now, not everybody can get to that program. Um, but there are training programs out there from carrier train, JCI, um, their air conditioning clinics uh, that they have. They have their, um, carrier has their technical development program. Care train has the air conditioning clinic. Both of those have some really, really good training stuff for psychometrics, ASHRAE does. Uh, if you go, if you're a member of ASHRAE and you go onto ASHRAE's website, they have a bunch of different online learning classes. Um, John, have you done any of the ASHRAE online learning stuff on psychometrics? 
I have not. Um, I do have one of their design books for buildings in hot and humid climates on my bookshelf that's very useful, that goes through it extremely well. And that was um, Lou Harriman, Joe Steebrook, and I'm forgetting one other author on there, I believe. Uh, but that's available through ASHRAE. And that's a really good one. Um, okay. The other resource um, that I think sometimes gets forgotten about, overlooked, um, are older industry experts that had to do it by hand, that are good at it, that you've kind of found over the years. I've been very, very lucky to find a couple uh, industry experts that were uh, champions in psychometrics. Uh, one of them uh, that I worked with, uh, Andy Osk, he worked for uh, Santa Fe Dehumidification. He, you know, been in the industry for quite a long time and wrote his own book on it as well. Um, that book's H2NO, which I actually have on my desk right now. Um, that's a really good little resource. It's kind of a more of a casual read, but he goes very in depth and, and, and teaches it in a way that you'll remember it. Um, so it's a lot more enjoyable than maybe some of the staunch academic papers on it. But uh, yeah, just get out and 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 just take some measurements, plot it on the psych chart. And the only way to actually learn it is to do it. I mean, you can measure the outside air outside your house, measure the air inside your house, put it on the psych chart and see the difference. Um, calculate the energies. Um, the other way that I learned it is taking the PE exam when I had to learn it for that is you get, you have to get to the point to where you don't have to think about what the values mean. You have to just no, okay, this is, where I'm, this is where I'm headed with this. There's no time to question it. So once you just use it and go through it enough, you get, you get better at it. It's, um, we get comfortable because we have everything that'll calculate everything for us and we don't do it and work it out on paper. And, and that's one of the challenges. You have to work it out on paper to get really good at it and get to where it feels intuitive to you and it's not uh, confusing. Because it's really pretty simple. It's just moisture and air and how they interact with each other. So. Yeah, it, you're right, John. And, um, you know, I, I'm like Tony, I have, you know, my psych chart. Um, I have the big one because I'm old and I've had this one forever. But the cool part is every one of them, if you turn it over and you look at the backside of it, it's got instructions. Um, and this is invaluable, um, you know, because the instructions help you work your way through it. And the best thing I can tell you is, it's like everything else that we do, the more you do it and the more you practice, the easier it gets. Um, Tony, you got, I mean, you're like me, you've been around a while. Um, what's, yep. what's your thoughts on, on other industry resources? I think a combination of in-person and online is a good, a good, a good way to do it. Maybe start online, but then get with somebody in person. If you're, you know, if you have a local rep, if you're in Hobbs or Insight Partners territory, we have can presentations that we've given, you know, here with Armstrong and those guys will be glad to come by. If you're not, there's a rep in your area that probably can do that. Um, and of course, you know, the best YouTube channel in the world, HVAC TV has tons of videos. On there. <laughs> Shameless <laughs> plug for our YouTube channel. But um, if you go to YouTube and type in at HVAC dash TV, uh, all of the webinars that we've done here in terms of psychometrics with Armstrong are on that, on that channel. You can go check those out. But yeah, that and a combination of having folks come by and a combination of going out to the job site. And, I, and for me, this is not like I learn a bike and I know it forever. I got to kind of continuously maintain it. You know, I got to look at it because I, you know, took a couple of years off and, you know, didn't look at it. And I don't, not, not necessarily hundred percent relearn it, but I really had to get the, the wheels turning again. So it's, a, it should, but it's just a great tool when you, you know, when you're just trying to figure out what's going on, like, uh, you know, even in the beginning, if you're new, it's really, really helpful. So some resources there. You know, one of the things, and, and I, I put this out there, you know, we, I mean, we talk a lot about engineers, but understanding psychometrics isn't just for engineers. If you're a service guy, oh, it's yeah. really, really important. Super important. important. I, yeah, 100%. You know, I mean, we all do because we're engineers and we, you know, we kind of got thrust into it, but at the end of the day, the service guys really need to know this forwards, backwards, and ups, upside down, and inside down. Understand the processes. Now, you know, do the service guys have to know how to do the psych chart? It's no. kind of nice and it's, it's good. It's a good idea. But you really need to understand the processes of what's going on and, and what all those different points mean. And if you get a chance, go take a class. 
Yeah. Um, you know, reach out to, you know, reach out to Tony, reach out to me, reach out to John, any one of us will help you get, you know, steer you in the right direction to learn how to learn psychometrics. Could I, could I comment on that, Tony, real quick? So mm-hmm. this is a, I'm passionate about this point too. So we encourage our techs to, you know, you don't have to take three months of psychometrics to your tech, but just to know the properties of air, the difference between relative humidity and humidity is so super important. And for example, like we do a lot of surgery suites or pharmaceutical manufacturing where, you know, you might have it at 65 degrees in the space, but it's 80% RH, which is actually a pretty low dew point if I'm, I hope I'm not sticking my foot in my mouth, but you get what I'm saying. The relative humidity might be high, but it's a low dew point. Being able to explain that to an owner who's just seeing the relative humidity, you know, it's 80%, like it's humid in here. No, it's not really. It's just because it's cold in here. You know, this is where it's at. So just to having the basics for those particular situations, and you don't need to be an expert at it, really. You just need to know the basic stuff if you're a tech and it's super helpful. Well, and Tony, to to that end, you know, we talk about psychometrics and understanding dehumidification, but we also got to understand it on the humidification side. Mm. We're trying to add moisture back to the airstream. And in a lot of those cases, we're talking about grains per pound. We're actually talking about how much moisture is in the air, not a humidity percentage or a relative humidity right. percentage. It's all yep. about the grains per pound because I really don't care what the humidity is. I mean, yeah, I do, but that's not that, that, that's not a it, humidity is relative. Yeah. One of the things I find yeah, one of the things I find helpful with with relative humidity is think of it as drying potential. Um, the higher the relative humidity, the more closer to saturation we are. And therefore, the less drying potential that air has. So if you get air at a low relative humidity, it can absorb a lot of moisture at its current state before pushing it to the saturation point. Um, relative humidity is really just a vapor pressure fraction is all you're right. really looking at. And it is absolutely relative to temperature. So if you lower the temperature, the air can hold less moisture because it's more dense. And therefore, your relative humidity is going to go up. But your actual grains per pound true uh, water content of the air did not change, right? So that's the how you have to look at it. It's how much drying potential that air has. I think I find that helpful. Yeah. Armin, next question. All right. Um, as we see move forward, as we move forward, outside air, building envelope, and equipment performance are all related and influence equipment performance. Do you see CO2 monitoring to manage fresh air as a solution? That was a mouthful. So if you want me to repeat it, I can. <laughs> no, I, I think I think I understand it. So one of the things that that we've dealt with, you know, I can think back to years ago when we, you know, we designed buildings and we designed for outside air. And we put, you know, five or ten percent outside air, and just enough to pressurize the building. And then we got really energy conscious in the in the 70s, and oh no, we can't bring in outside air into the building because it costs us energy, and we quit. And then we made buildings sick. And then we decided, okay, we're going to put whole bunches of outside air back into the buildings. And I know John and Tony, I'm admitting my age when I start talking about this because this is probably before I know it's before you, John. Probably you, Tony, to a to a lesser extent. But we we started bringing more outside air into the building, and we decided, okay, it's X number of CFM per person, or it's X number of CFM per square foot, and that's all well and good. But what we're heading towards now is demand controlled ventilation where we're using CO2 or some other property, usually CO2, because we can measure the outside air CO2 and we can measure the CO2 in the building. And we know that as we put people in the building, we all respirate. And as we respirate, we're giving off CO2. It's one of the byproducts of being human. Um, as As we all respirate in a building, CO2 content starts to go up. And as the CO2 content goes up, we can look at, oh, I need to increase the ventilation rate into a space to bring the CO2 concentration down to whatever it is outside. Because it can never be, the building can never be any better 
than what it is outside. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's really a question of, you know, how often do we see demand control ventilation and using the CO2 controls? And John and Tony, I'll let you throw, you know, throw your two cents in. I think we might have just lost audio on Tony. You want me to go, John? On this one, of why oh, we do oh. DCB oh. Uh, and, and how it works. I mean, you guys have, have seen it. There we go. I think we're having a delay there. Yeah, I think, so, yeah, having a delay. At any rate, um, yeah, no, so, so CO2 is really not the critical gas that we're trying to monitor. CO2 is a good marker to indicate occupancy. And outside air is really critical and really only very important, barring any other process you're trying to achieve inside the building for people. So when you don't have people in the building, why would we spend money on, on ventilating the building? Um, that's why when you have like morning startup where you're going to, you know, kind of flush the building out and get it back down to temperature, get it back up to temperature. That's kind of your, to flush the VOCs that have come from building components and whatnot. Um, but CO2 is a really good marker gas and it really does help uh, as a as a metric to to measure you know how much ventilation air do I need, um, so I'm seeing it to be more common. Um, seeing it you know because people are becoming more energy conscious, the owners are becoming more energy conscious uh, for multiple reasons. Everything from uh, code requirements to trying to hit you know lead or other um, you know, green building type initiatives. Uh, Tony, what do you have to add to that? Well, I'm all for any means of measuring the stuff we don't want in the air and providing a solution for it. Because otherwise you're just shooting in the dark, first of all, and you're, you're in terms of like, we're talking about, I'm talking about pure efficiency, right? Like the best way to clean the space out is just pumping a ton of outdoor air all the time, but it's just not very efficient. Um, you know, there's a lot of tools today where you can measure a lot of the contaminants. CO2 is an easy, cheap one to measure, and it's a good, it's good kind of marker gas. Like John said, there's sensors out there that can measure 15 things, and you could take action based on that. But I think like just a broader part of this conversation, and I'm glad Tony brought this up, is you know, I've sat through a few presentations lately, and the 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 theme of the presentation was look, we got to start looking at the whole building and the controls. We squeeze just about every ounce of efficiency we can out of HVAC equipment. I mean, we just can't get it much more efficient than it is. Chillers, air-cooled chillers have like flatlined over the last 10 years. I mean, you can't, because you're at the point now where to get another 2% of efficiency would cost you another 40% in copper and metal. And it's just like, you know what I'm saying? You get to that point where it's just not worth it anymore. So the HVAC equipment is, unless there's some big breakthrough, is probably not going to get much more efficient. Now, I hate that we're recording this because 10 years from now, we might play that and say, look at how dumb Tony was because we've, got, we've gotten twice as efficient. I'm sure some engineers said this 10 years ago, but it just like, it's almost like unfeasible that it can just because of the amount of copper and the heat transfer and the approach and all that stuff, et cetera. So anything that looks at the overall, the deal is you got to design it right, have the right features in place. And then you got to have a building owner who knows how to use this stuff. I mean, how many of us have been to a job site and the, oh, the OA damper's closed, it's done, you know, they don't, the CO2 monitor's not working. I mean, this happens all the time um, in our industry. So an overall, you right. know, I mean, change. Tony, you know, I've, I've gone out and I don't know how many jobs I've gone out and looked at over the years and I go look at the air handlers and either the outside air damper, somebody's overridden them closed or they're bound up because nobody's done the maintenance on them mm. and uh, they're stuck in whatever position they're in, you know, they're, you know, maybe they got stuck in full economizer mode. And so they're, they're wide open and we've got zero return air, hundred percent outside air, which is fine for maintaining indoor air quality, but really horrible on efficiency. Mm. And you're going to lose coil capacity really quick. I mean, that air handler was never designed for 100% outside air. So, um, yeah. you know, I, and I see this, and I did a lot of work down in Florida when I lived in Florida, a lot of coastal stuff. And, man, salt air just is horrible for Nasty, yeah. roof, packaged rooftop units. I mean, the packaged rooftop units, the, the outside air dampers, not their bad dampers, but they're not designed for coastal climates. And think about varying loads too. You know, we talk about CO2 demand control ventilation. I want to make sure we snuck in there building pressurization. Um, if you've got mm -hmm. a kitchen, you know, and you've got 
kitchen exhaust and you're relying on a certain amount of outside air getting into that building to make that building positive, if you let that unit run that's serving the dining area just on demand control, it may be at a minimum, you have to make sure that when that kitchen hood get kick, gets kicked on, that minimum point gets reset to make sure you're maintaining positive pressure in the building because you're gonna right. be stealing air from other areas around it. And then zone pressurization as well. So if you've got a bunch of outside air needed for, you know, operating suites, and then you've got a bunch of exhaust needed for, uh, you know, your lab areas near those operating suites. You need to make sure that the, z the zones are pressurized correctly, and then you have pathways for the air to get back to wherever it needs to get to, so you're not drawing one area too negative and having one area too positive and whatnot. So, well, that, 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 that you've got to remember about demand control ventilation is if, if I go back and look at the different code bodies for building design, most of them all have a caveat in there that says, yeah, you can do demand control ventilation. However, you cannot go below the code required minimums that that building requires for minimum pressurization or minimum ventilation rate or anything like that. You, you have to maintain that code required minimum all the time. Um, there are, you know, the other thing is we've got to look in, and this is really prevalent, John, and you'll know this, and Tony, you'll know this, and when you start moving into variable air volume systems, um, in understanding what's going on in the VAV system as we reduce the amount of air going into a space because the VAV box is starting to close mm -hmm. off, what's happening to the ventilation rate in that space and the, the outside air fractionation that, you know, how much of that air that's going into the space, how much of that is actually outside air as opposed to recirculated air. And so there's a lot that goes into this. So DCB is great, but you really got to understand the building science that goes on uh, to make it work. Yep. Armin, you got another one for us? Yeah, I do. All right. So what online resources do you suggest to learn how to size air handling units? Oh, boy. Um, air handling units are really sized based on what your load calculation tells you. Okay. Once you know the amount of airflow you have to have to each space, then you can side, then you can design your duct system, and then your air handling unit is going to be sized to maintain, you know, to, to satisfy that all that airflow you got going out to the space. Um, and there you may take diversity into account depending on depending on your design and what the you know what you're serving. Um, but then your air handler is going to be selected to move X number of CFM at a certain duct static pressure. So you've got to understand how much air you need at what your static pressure losses are in your duct system, both supply and return. So you can, you know, you got to overcome all that. And then, then you got to select your coils. And um, I know every one of the equipment manufacturers has air handling unit selection software. Um, and, you know, guys like Tony and, and all of his uh, compadres at, at Insight Partners can help with selecting air handlers based on what the known conditions are that you got to maintain in the building um, or that you're going to try to do with an air handling unit. Tony, you got anything to add to that? Not really. Uh, you nailed it. I mean, a good building load and call your local trusted rep, you know, find a rep that you trust and, and is good. You know, I uh, most manufacturers have available a version of the selection software where you can actually take it and use it yourself as a consultant. And we, we, I've had consultants in the past who've, who've done that. I would say your time is probably better spent, you know, having a rep do it that can do it real fast, familiar with the software and knows the ins and outs. Cause there's a lot of like, you get in a custom chill water air handling units. There's a lot of things you may not realize when you're selecting the coil or selecting the air handler that they can they can help you with. So yeah, work with a, a local rep and some, some of them will come by and go through it with you on the computer, on the selection program. That's probably a good way. I would actually encourage that if you're new, because you kind of get to see how the unit's selected and it's really an iterative process, right? And it's a, there's engineering trade-offs to every air handler from size, pressure drop, weight, um, you know, materials of construction, budget, you know, so all these things come into play with a good air handling unit selection. Yep. John, you got anything you want to add? Um, 
just maybe on some of the, the simpler units, like your package DX rooftops um, and your, your simple split systems, you know, under five tons, even up maybe 25 tons on the package rooftops. Sometimes you can get the performance data from the manufacturers and kind of select them yourself based on the load calculations. But as you go up in size, really above the five ton range, definitely go to your rep and get help. Um, below five tons, it's usually a pretty canned solution. You know, this air handler will do 1850 CFM. It'll produce... Uh, you know, 57,000 BTUs and, you know, it'll do it at uh, up to one inch static total. And it's a sensible heat ratio of, you know, 0.78. That's what they designed it at. And then you can get the specific performance data from there and look at, you know, your air conditions and see, okay, if I've got a little bit more humid air, does the sensible heat ratio kind of slide down and I get a little bit more latent, a little less sensible out of the unit? Is it going to be able to do what I want? And kind of work backwards from your load but it all starts really with the load and then seeing how big of a unit you have and how complex of a unit you need for the building and then either go to the rep to to get help with the selection or go to the rep to get the the data on the smaller units and you can kind of work into those selections with them yeah yeah okay ready for the next one guys yep all right when quantities of air at different state points mix how does the state point of the mixture relate to the original state points on the psychometric chart? I'm gonna let you guys answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to draw it out in my head. I, might have yeah, to, no, yeah. a, I think it's just a straightforward air mixing problem where you're gonna plot both state points and then draw the line between it. And depending on your mass fraction of each one is gonna be where that lies along that line. So your ratio of mass fraction is going to be the how close you are at one point or the other. Maybe, Tony, you can explain it a little bit better. Uh, I think you nailed it. I mean, it's going to be... That's the gist of it. It's going to lay on the straight line between the two points. That's it. That's what I was going to say. If you just plot the two points, connect it with a line, it's somewhere in there depending on the mass ratio, as, as John said. Yeah, I mean, in the end, you're exactly right. So if you've got outside air, return air coming together to your mixed air condition, Whatever that percentage is, is where it's going to slide. You know, if you're if you're 80% outside air and 20% mixed, 20% return air, you're going to be more towards the outside air condition versus the return air condition, yeah. and vice versa. If I'm 80 80% return air, 20% outside air, now I'm going to be closer to that return air point. And and understand as long as you know what that line is, and this is kind of that whole troubleshooting concept. If I know what the line is and I know what, and I'm taking a measurement and I'm reading it, I can kind of figure out where, you know, am I too much outside air? Am I not enough outside air? You know, what's really going on? Because you can see that as it slides up and down that point. You guys got anything to add to that? Or we did we butcher that Everybody one? That <laughs> I think got it. Yeah. If it's 50-50, it's easy. Yeah, 50-50 yeah. is easy. Hey, you guys ready for the next one? Uh-huh. Okay. Could you talk about building connections to district chilled water systems? Why provide secondary pumps rather than connect coils directly to the primary loop? How are these pumps controlled? Um, okay, but that has nothing to do with psychometrics or what does in a lot of ways. <laughs> and you're <laughs> such a good, you're such a good pump expert, Tony. They could not yeah. resist. You got, yeah, you got to get the pump. Yeah. In there, so, um, <laughs> um, I mean, I'm afraid to ask who asked that question. Um. <laughs> I I have some ideas. How we control the pumps, you know, it, the, the the problem that we run into in a district energy loop when we have the central utility plant pumps trying to control the individual buildings, depending on how those buildings are laid out in relationship to where the central energy plant is and you know, your central energy plant pumps have to be sized. You know, if you're going to do that, 
and not use building pumps, you have to understand that you got to cover the building head loss with the central energy plant pumps. And so oftentimes having individual pumps at the individual buildings results in lower total connected horsepower and a better diversity factor in the system design because not all your buildings are going to peak at the same time because of their relative siting in relationship to the central utility plant. The whole idea is having individual building pumps, you can control what those buildings are doing in that building and reduce total and total consumed horsepower better by having the sensors in the buildings and only providing the, the central plant pumps to meet the required flow in the central loop to satisfy those pumps as, assuming they're all at 100%. There's, there's another there's side really, of that. That was a really off the cuff <laughs> answer that there's a whole lot more that goes into that, that if somebody wants to have that discussion with me, I'm more than happy to have that discussion, but I wasn't quite prepared for a central <laughs> utility plant pumping question. I, I mean, I guess the only other two cents I have to throw out is there's also a liability issue as a building owner. If you have a separate loop with a heat exchanger separating you from the central, whatever happens in that central loop is not your responsibility besides uh, you know, paying your bill. Um, so if they have an issue on that central loop, it's not gonna affect your building from the standpoint of water quality or contamination. And then anything that happens in your building through maintenance or contamination or water quality issues are not gonna get back to the central loop and then every other building in that loop. Mm. So it isolates your building and, and kind of makes your, um, your, your liability less by having an isolated separate pumping system for your own building. Yeah, John, that's a good point, is, is, is the hydraulic separation between the utility distribution network and the individual buildings. And in that hydraulic separation, I ran into this at a job out in Los Angeles. They had no hydraulic separation between the loop and the buildings. And they had some 40 and 50-story buildings. Well, you got a 50-story building to that chilled water plant that distribution loop, every building on there has to be able to handle the pressure of the tallest building on the loop because that's what's going to set your static mm -hmm. pressure. The other problem is if one building develops a leak, guess what? Yeah, you oh, could no. be taking the entire system down with that one building. Just trying to find the leak. Yeah, just trying to find the leak depending on how many buildings there are. So there's a lot of things that go into that. That there's a, a much bigger discussion about hydraulic separation and what's important and, and why. So if it's separated by a heat exchanger, then it's the same pumping principles as any other building would exactly. be pretty much, Tony and John, is that right? Yep. Yep. Okay. I've learned a lot about okay, this. I mean, now that you've thrown, thrown us all for a loop, um, I know. I'm really sorry. And I think the uh, the attendee actually said, sorry, didn't mean to throw you off of topic. <laughs> hey, I encourage I encourage trying to throw Tony off. I love this. I know, me too. I Let's think that's why I read it. <laughs> All right. So next one. Uh, we have a number of questions coming in. So um, we just might have to speed it up a little bit so we can get to everything. We have 15 more minutes. Okay. So how important is it to take into consideration the changes in specific volume after conditioning, yielding a discrepancy between the return air CFM versus a supply air CFM? Does the imbalance increase in certain climates? Okay, John's grabbing the textbook to look back on. Well, I, I just want to look at the psych check chart real quick because I don't think it's that huge of a change. It's maybe, I want to say what, maybe 13.8 cubic feet per pound up to maybe 14 point something. Yeah, it's not, it's it, been it, a while since so I've looked at it. I, I haven't done that calculation on the psych chart for a while. Um, since I play with pumps more than anything, I don't play with the psych chart as oh, much. Not any, um, it's not a significant change in uh, in volume going from one side to the other. Now, I've done a bunch of combustion yeah. side stuff, and in the combustion world, it, it does make a huge difference because uh, there's yeah, such a drastic temperature difference between, you know, air entering a burner and air leaving a burner. 
But you're talking, yeah, maybe 13 cubic feet per pound down around 55, 50 degrees. That's at 50 degrees. Up at around, you know, 85 degrees, you're still only at around 14. So one. Yeah, I mean, there's just not much. There's not much change there. There is some. I mean, it just depends on the. I guess if you have a very large volume and you're really trying to be as accurate as possible, it may make sense. But on most typical smaller units, you know, 25 tons, 15 tons, 10 tons, it's it's negligible. Well, I think it would Probably. depend too, and, and Tony and John, think about this. Depends on your application. Are you in a critical environment? You know, is this a clean room? Is this a uh, is this a chip manufacturing facility or is this a K-12 elementary school? You know, I think you really kind of have to, you have to understand the application. You have to understand the implications for that application. And, and that's, you know, that's part of understanding psychometrics and what's really going on. So hopefully that answered everybody answered the question. Armin? Yeah, hope so. All right. So why do we always use 55 degrees for sizing air handling units? Why can't we increase the temperature for energy saving? Oh. We just put out a LinkedIn post, why 55 degrees that was written 25 years ago. <laughs> It was one of our most popular LinkedIn posts, actually. It wasn't something I wrote. I, we just we just borrowed some some data. So sorry, Tony. I just jumped in here, but um. No, go ahead. You're, no, you, that's you, a, hey, you you started down the pathway, young man. Go for it. I know. Now I'm now I'm stuck <laughs> with having to answer this. Um. So my understanding is it started at 55 because it made the numbers work out easy on the chart, and it's a relatively um dry condition. But it is a total arbitrary number. You could actually get in tons of trouble using 55 degrees. Uh, the reason you don't well, the reason we cool the air in the first place is mostly to remove the humidity and the sensible heat. So there's a purpose of colder temperatures, okay? So if we're trying to remove humidity, the coil has to be colder than the dew point of the air. That's just a fact. doesn't matter the manufacturer. That's just how it works. And depending on how much humidity we're trying to move will depend on the temperature of that coil, which will, you know, determine the leaving air temperature of the coil in terms of dry bulbs. So if, if you raise that temperature, you will save energy. As a matter of fact, if you turn your air conditioner off completely, you'll save a ton of energy, but it just doesn't, to take it to an extreme, right? So if you start raising it up, you're just gonna elevate the humidity in the space. You know, there, there is something called supplier temperature reset, which is done in usually in mild climates that aren't very humid. I'm from Florida, I live in North Carolina now, but, and even here we wouldn't do it, but in humid climates, you just, the colder the air, the better in terms of removing humidity than you heat it back up. So from an energy saving standpoint, you're gonna totally negate the whole purpose of the system, which is to keep the humidity and, and temperature at a, in that window of where the design intent is. So. Right. And aren't, and there, aren't there some manufacturers, Tony, that are pushing for lower discharge air off the cooling coils, especially like outside air units where they're trying to get them down to yeah, the 40s, so mid 40s? That's a whole other question is, you know, is it better to have colder air and less CFM? You know, depending on your space, sometimes it's better to have, you know, 50 degree air rather than 55 and less CFM. It's more efficient in some cases, not every case, but yeah, so it yeah, really depends. Think about I mean, that. Yeah. I've done some, I've done some different designs where, where we've dropped the air temperature down um, and then dropped the airflow down because, you know, maybe it's a critical space and I don't want the yeah. high volume of air. Um, now, you know, the same thing will sure if you do in hospital operating rooms, you're trying to maintain a number of air changes. And so, you know, you, you got to play with that and understand what you're trying to do. But you're right. If I make 50 degree air, I don't need to send nearly the volume in that if I'm doing 55 degree air. So different yeah. things. And, and it's all things you got to look at and you got to make that decision from trade off of leaving air temperature versus volume. And where your energy, where your energy cost is in those two sides of the equation. That's part of the reason why a lot of the old chilled water air handlers that had ice systems attached to them did really well because they were dealing with a 35, 36 degree coming out of the ice tanks. 
heading out to the coils and they get the coils really cold. And a lot of those were pretty complex units with, you know, return air bypass and separate outside air decks. So the outside air was seeing, you know, 42 degree water, or 40 degree water. Um, and that was just available because it came out of the ice, you know, came out of the ice storage system. So we weren't trying to run a chiller down to there. We had already done that all night to make ice. So those systems worked yeah. really well. Yeah. Yeah, great I've question. Some, great question. Yeah, okay. I've done some basin bypass coils on uh, chilled water because of that. Because I want to make really, I want to make, yeah, I want to dry the air, wring the air. You know, I got to be careful about moisture, and so I'll do a basin bypass uh, around the coil uh, to control, you know, control moisture as opposed to control leaving air temp. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to the next one. Based on psychometrics. Do you see chilled beans as commercially viable or are they too complicated for the industry? Wow. Um, okay, so I've done a couple, I've done several chilled bean jobs, both active and passive. I don't think they're horribly complicated um, from a purely operational standpoint. I mean, they work, they're simple, they don't have a whole lot of moving parts, they do what they're supposed to do. The challenge to it is, depending on whether you have active or passive, you've got to pay attention to relative humidity in the building, okay? And so if, if, you, if your beams are not set up to deal with dehumidification, you got to provide external dehumidification because otherwise the beams will start to sweat and develop condensation on them. And then you get puddles on the floor and people tend to get a little bit upset when they walk down the hallway and they slip and slide on the floor um, or the carpet gets wet. Um, or in my case, I walk underneath of them and I have this, you know, lack of hair and chilled water drops on my head. It's cold. Um, it's kind of like being caught out in the rain in 40 degree weather. It's not fun. Um, so the chilled beam systems is really, really dependent on the temperature controls contractor knowing what he's doing. Um, John and Tony, you guys got anything you want to add to that? I think no, you're well covered. I, yeah. Go ahead, Tony. I was just going to say, we've seen them successfully in the stalled in the Southeast. The design is important and, you know, it's one of those. You know what are the engineering trade-offs about this system versus the 400 other systems that are out there right now? So, but yeah, we've seen that we see them we see them in the southeast. Yeah, dew point control becomes critical. That's the biggest thing. You really have to watch your your space dew points. Yeah, I did uh, I did some college dormitories and and we put we actually built controls in that if the doors to the building, uh, both the interior and exterior doors on the vestibule were standing open for more than, I forget what the time value was, we just locked the system out. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I mean, you guys can remember back to when you were in college and, you know, move, you know, move, can you imagine move in day in a dorm? The doors mm -hmm. are standing open the entire time. You know, you, you, you're not gonna run a chill beam system in that application. It just, it's not gonna work. That you're never gonna get the humidity in the building under control. So, I mean, from a pumping standpoint, you know, it's it's a coil. I'm pumping water through it. I, you know, that's easy. Armin? All right. So we have three minutes left. I'm going to try to pick the most important questions. And it's almost like a fire round. <laughs> Let's see how fast you guys can go. All right? All right. So, is it possible to use a psychometric chart for a scenario with use of a hot gas return from an outdoor heat pump outdoor condenser unit? Assume 100% outdoor air AHU. Can you read that again? I think that's a DX question. I'm not sure. Yeah, sure. Is it possible to use a psychometric chart for a scenario with use of a hot gas return from an outdoor heat pump, outdoor condenser unit, assume 100% outdoor air AHU. Does that sound like a hot gas reheat question, John and Tony? I'm not sure. I, I, I personally am not following the question. Well, 
you know, Tony, I've done, I've seen some applications where we have, this kind of goes back to grocery store refrigeration. Oh, where we used to put hot gas, we used to put a hot gas coil in the air handling unit. Mm -hmm. And so Reclaim the grocery coil. store refrigeration was the, yeah. the condenser side of the grocery store refrigeration. We were taking that heat and rejecting it off to the grocery store for wintertime heating rather than fire up the gas fire rooftop unit. And gotcha. yes, you can yes, you can use the psych chart to do all those calculations, but you got to know a whole lot about the refrigeration side and what the available condenser capacity is. You know, I mean, it's oh, it is it's heat transfer. Um, the only difference is most of that's going to be sensible as opposed to latent. So that okay. that's the short answer to that one. All right. Okay. One last question, and then I will turn it over to you guys to uh, close it off. Um, how would it feel inside an office building if the dry bulb and wet bulb temperature are equal? Is that favorable? No. <laughs> I would say no. no. If I have 75 degree dry bulb and 75 degree wet bulb, it's going to be hot and humid in that space. It's going to be miserable. Um, and, and the wet bulb can never be above the dry bulb. That's physically impossible. Um, well, I, I suppose it could be, it could be theoretical if it was pouring down rain inside the building. Um, but the, the reality is if they're equal, it's going to be really uncomfortable because you can't you're on Get the saturation line. Yeah, yeah, you're on the saturation line. That's the only time you have those two equal. And the dew point, they're all relatively equal right on the saturation line. Yep. Tony, okay. you want to throw it out there for that one? Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> Turn your AC as cold as it can and wait four hours. That's probably yeah. good. Yeah, you, that's the closest you're probably going to get. Yeah. Yeah, but it's good, good, quite really good question. Hey, we've had a lot of great questions today. So, yeah, oh, yeah. we I have a ton more. <laughs> we have a ton more that we haven't had a chance to read, but um, we didn't even talk about building envelope. Uh, we just, <laughs> I, <know>. I think <laughs> this could okay. turn into like a four hour session, but we won't do that to our, to our <laughs> attendees. So, um, Tony Mormino, I'm going to put you on the spot. Any closing thoughts? No, just thank you again for having me and thank you all for participating. It's really a lot more fun as presenters when we have engagement from the audience. So I would say thank you all for watching and thanks Starmstrong for having me. I appreciate it. We really appreciate you and thanks for joining us, Tony. Yep. Really appreciate thanks, it. Tony, appreciate it. All right, John, any closing thoughts? Um, just be mindful that, you know, 90% of what we're doing in air conditioning is trying to control moisture and trying to protect the building envelope and the comfort of occupants. So if you can control the moisture, you've probably got most of it handled. The temperature side's a little bit easier. So that's about it. Tony? Yeah, Tony first. So um, first of all, I want to thank uh, John and Tony for joining me today. Uh, this has been fun. I agree. Having the interaction with all the, all the attendees is a lot more fun. Um, because we get to provide what you guys really want instead of us talking about what we want to talk about. With that being said, thank you all for all your participation over the past 12 months. Um, we here at Armstrong really enjoy doing this. Uh, we enjoy the interactions with our customers. And we hope that you've gotten something out of this over the past year. Uh, we look forward to what we're going to be presenting in 2024. We've got a lot of great subjects coming up for 2024. A lot of neat stuff coming. Uh, we're going to continue the, the highly technical sessions that we've put together. We're going to cover a lot of different ground in building sciences and, and designing HVAC systems to maximize efficiency and occupant comfort and, and all that. Uh, and most importantly, I want to thank, I want to say happy holidays to everybody. Enjoy the upcoming holiday season with your friends and your family. Uh, and thank you once again for all your support of Armstrong Fluid Technology, Insight Partners, and all our reps around the country. With that, 
Have a wonderful day, folks. Thank you for listening. The Engineers HVAC podcast is brought to you by a family of amazing HVAC rep firms, including Hobbs & Associates, Insight Partners, Bay Associates Group, CG Wood Company, Engineered Building Systems, Eteros HVAC, Energy Transfer Solutions, Job Industrial Measurement and Control, Climate New Jersey, Climate New York, and the Kirkman Oliver Company.